episode 48. War, it will be seen, accomplishes the necessary destruction, but accomplishes it in a psychologically acceptable way. In principle, it would be quite simple to waste the surplus labor of the world by building temples and pyramids, by digging holes and filling them up again, or even by producing vast quantities of goods and setting fire to them. But this would provide only the economic and not the emotional basis for a hierarchical society. What is concerned here is not the morale of masses whose attitude is unimportant so long as they are kept steadily at work, but the morale of the party itself. Even the humblest party member is expected to be competent, industrious, and even intelligent within narrow limits. But it is also necessary that he should be a credulous and ignorant fanatic whose prevailing moods are fear, hatred, adulation, and orgiastic triumph. In other words, it is necessary that he should have the mentality appropriate to a state of war. It does not matter whether the war is actually happening, and since no decisive victory is possible, it does not matter whether the war is going well or badly. All that is needed is that a state of war should exist. The splitting of the intelligence which the party requires of its members, and which is more easily achieved in an atmosphere of war, is now almost universal. But the higher up the ranks one goes, the more marked it becomes. It is precisely the inner party whose war hysteria and hatred of the enemy are strongest. In his capacity as an administrator, it is often necessary for a member of the inner party to know that this or that item of war news is untruthful. And he may often be aware that the entire war is spurious and is either not happening or is being waged for purposes quite other than the declared ones. But such knowledge is easily neutralized by the technique of doublethink. Meanwhile, no inner party member wavers for an instant in his mystical belief that the war is real and that it is bound to end victoriously with Oceania the undisputed master of the entire world. All members of the inner party believe in this coming conquest as an article of faith. It is to be achieved either by gradually acquiring more and more territory and so building up an overwhelming preponderance of power or by the discovery of some new and unanswerable weapon. The search for new weapons continues unceasingly and it is one of the very few remaining activities in which the inventive or speculative type of mind can find any outlet. In Oceania, at the present day, science in the old sense has almost ceased to exist. In Newspeak, there is no word for science. The empirical method of thought on which all the scientific achievements of the past were founded 
is opposed to the most fundamental principles of Ingsoc. And even technological process only happens when its products can in some way be used for the diminution of human liberty. In all the useful arts, the world is either standing still or going backwards. The fields are cultivated with horse plows, while books are being written by machinery. But in matters of vital importance, meaning in effect war and police espionage, the empirical approach is still encouraged, or at least tolerated. The two aims of the party are to conquer the whole surface of the earth and to extinguish once and for all the possibility of independent thought. There are therefore two great problems which the party is concerned to solve. One is how to discover, against his will, what another human being is thinking. And the other is how to kill several hundred million people in a few seconds without giving warning beforehand. Insofar as scientific research still continues, this is its subject matter. The scientist of today is either a mixture of psychologist and inquisitor, studying with real ordinary minuteness the meaning of facial expressions, gestures, and tones of voice, and testing the truth-producing effects of drugs, shock therapy, hypnosis, and physical torture. Or he is chemist, physicist, or biologist, concerned only with such branches of his special subject as are relevant to the taking of life. In the vast laboratories of the Ministry of Peace, and in the experimental stations hidden in the Brazilian forests, or in the Australian desert, or on lost islands of the Antarctic, the teams of experts are indefatigably at work. Some are concerned simply with planning the logistics of future wars. Others devise larger and larger rocket bombs, more and more powerful explosives, and more and more impenetrable armor plating. Others search for new and deadlier gases or for soluble poisons capable of being produced in such quantities as to destroy the vegetation of whole continents or for breeds of disease germs immunized against all possible antibodies. Others strive to produce a vehicle that shall bore its way under the soil like a submarine under the water or an aeroplane as independent of its base as a sailing ship. Others explore even remoter possibilities, such as focusing the sun's rays through lenses suspended thousands of kilometers away in space, or producing artificial earthquakes and tidal waves by tapping the heat at the Earth's center. But none of these projects ever comes anywhere near realization, and none of the three superstates ever gains a significant lead on the others. What is more remarkable is that all three powers already possess in the atomic bomb a weapon far more powerful than any that their present researchers are likely to discover. Although the party, according to its habit, claims the invention for itself, 
Atomic bombs first appeared as early as the 1940s and were first used on a large scale about 10 years later. At that time, some hundreds of bombs were dropped on industrial centers, chiefly in European Russia, Western Europe, and North America. The effect was to convince the ruling groups of all countries that a few more atomic bombs would mean the end of organized society, and hence of their own power. Therefore, although no formal agreement was ever made or hinted at, no more bombs were dropped. All three powers merely continued to produce atomic bombs and store them up against the decisive opportunity which they all believe will come sooner or later. And meanwhile, the art of war has remained almost stationary for 30 or 40 years. Helicopters are used more than they were formerly. Bombing planes have been largely superseded by self-propelled projectiles, and the fragile, movable battleship has given way to the almost unsinkable floating fortress. But otherwise, there has been little development. The tank, the submarine, the torpedo, the machine gun, even the rifle and the hand grenade are still in use. And in spite of the endless slaughters reported in the press and on the telescreens, the desperate battles of earlier wars, in which hundreds of thousands or even millions of men were often killed in a few weeks, these have never been repeated. <laughs>